I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we attempt to discover the symbols used in Scripture and then to apply those symbols in our interpretation and understanding of other various passages of Scripture. This week we begin the book of Numbers, the fourth of the five books of Moses. Now, this book is unlike any other book that we will encounter as we go through the Bible. It has many features that make it one of my absolute favorite books of Scripture. But first off, let's start with the name. Just as with the book of Exodus and Leviticus, the name of this book numbers, it primes us for what we should expect to find in this book. Not that the English title is completely off the mark, but that the English title only tells half the story. With Exodus, we saw this in that only half of the book covers the events of Israel leaving Egypt. The last half of the book has very little to do with the events of the Exodus, but with the Hebrew name Shemot, or names, we find a fitting title that tells us a lot more about the book. For it's in this book that we're told the names of God is exemplified by his character, authority, power, reputation, and more, even his literal name. With Leviticus, the English title, it primes us for issues pertaining to the Levites. And if we go into this book with this expectation, then that's all we will see. For this book does cover many items of worship that only the Levites would have interacted with. But the Hebrew name of the book, Vayikra, or And He Called, it gives us a fuller revelation of the contents of the book. Because this third book contains what is necessary to know for all who are called to worship Hashem. Not just Levites, everyone. Here with Numbers, we encounter a very similar occurrence because this book does indeed both begin and end with a whole lot of accounting. Census numbers several times over, organizational arrangements, divisions and separations, all sorts of numbers and calculations that are simply boring on their face. But Numbers as a descriptive title, just as with the other books that we've looked at, is a limiting title. It only tells half the story, and frankly, it tells the most limiting part of this story. But the Hebrew title, Bamidbar, describes the book in a much fuller way, because that is what this book is about. Bamidbar, it means in the wilderness. This book covers Israel's adventures in the wilderness, the 38 years of trial that they underwent, the time of training that was necessary to build their faith in the God who had already proven himself capable. And this book covers the many aspects of this wilderness trial. And let's face it, there will come in the life of every believer 
a time of wilderness testing. Yeshua went through it. Paul went through it. Abraham went through it. Elijah went through it. Job went through it. So many of the characters of the Bible are sent through this wilderness test. This time of testing, though, it does not have to be a literal wilderness, but rather this time will be characterized by the motifs of the wilderness, specifically trials of faith, trust in God that he will provide, and faithfulness. Will you remain faithful to what God has called you to in the face of overwhelming opposition? Do you really believe that God is capable? Do you really believe that he will fulfill his promises? Even in the midst of lack, even in the midst of pain, even when surrounded by enemies, will you trust him to bring you through? And as we're going to find, trusting him is rarely easy. Because it demands that you look to your past and see God at work there, and then to interpose this past experience onto your current circumstances. And when your eyes are reporting to you a different story, when your mind is rebelling at the odds that are stacked against you, when your stomach is growling incessantly with the reminder that you are hungry, in the face of everything falling apart in your life, Can you still trust? And that is what the main topics of this book are going to cover. But before we get there, there is some ground to cover. Because just before you enter into the test, you are going to be reminded of just who you are and where you fit in this congregation of God. And that is how the book begins. Now, when we were in Leviticus, we saw that this book was broken up into four thematic sections. Well, this book, Numbers, is also broken up into thematic sections. This time in the book, there are three main sections, or movements. The first section will cover the first nine chapters of the book, and these nine chapters all occur at Mount Sinai. As the English name applies, this includes a lot of counting and organizational and pre-operational matters. Things that may not seem important as we read over them, but as we're going to find, they are of utmost importance. But getting to their importance will, once again, require us to pay extremely close attention to the text and to ask some very pointed questions. And so that's what we are going to do today. So let's open up to the book of Numbers and let's read chapters 1 and 2. Numbers chapter 1 and 2. And Hashem spoke to Moshe in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of appointment on the first day of the second new moon, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Mitzrayim, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head. From twenty years old and above, everyone going out to the army in Israel, number them by their divisions, you and Aaron. And a man from every tribe should be with you, each one the head of his father's house. And these are the names of the men who stand with you, from Reuven, Eletzer, son of Shadeir, from Shimon, Shalumiel, son of Tzereshadai, from Yehuda, Nachshon, the son of Aminadav, from Yisachar, Nathaniel, son of Tzuar, from Zebulun, Eliab, son of Chelan, from the sons of Yosef, from Ephraim, Elishama, son of Amihud, from Manasseh, Gamliel, son of Peratzur, from Benjamin, Avidan, son of Gidoni, from Dan, Achiezer, son of Amishadai. From Asher, Pagiel, son of Ochran. From Gad, Eliasaf, son of Deuel. 
from Naphtali, Achira, the son of Enan. These are the ones called from the congregation, leaders of their fathers' tribes, heads of the thousands of Israel. Now Moshe and Aaron took these men who were called by name, and they assembled all the congregation together on the first day of the second new moon, and they declared their ancestry by clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and above, each one head by head. As Hashem commanded Moshe, so the, he registered them in the wilderness of Sinai. And the children of Reuven, Yisrael's firstborn, their genealogies by their clans, by their father's house, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from twenty years old and above, everyone going out to the army. Those who were registered of the tribe of Reuven were forty-six thousand five hundred. From the children of Shimon, their genealogies by their clans, by their father's house, of those who were registered according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from twenty years old and above, everyone going out to the army, those who were registered of the tribe of Shimon were fifty-nine thousand three hundred. From the children of Gad, their genealogies by their clan, by their father's house, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and above, everyone going out to the army, those who were registered by the tribe of Gad were forty-five thousand six hundred and fifty. From the children of Yehuda, their genealogies by their clans, by their father's house, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and above, everyone going out to the army. Those who were registered of the tribe of Yehuda were seventy-four thousand six hundred. From the children of Yisachar, their genealogies by their clans, by their father's house, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and above, everyone going out to the army. Those who were registered of the tribe of Yisachar were fifty-four thousand four hundred. From the children of Zebulun, their genealogies by their clans, by their father's house, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and above, everyone going out to the army. Those who were registered of the tribe of Zebulun were 57,400. From the tribe of Yosef, the children of Ephraim, their genealogies by their clans, by their father's house, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and above, everyone going out to the army. Those who were registered of the tribe of Ephraim were 40,500. From the children of Manasseh, their genealogies by their clans, by their father's house, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and above, everyone going out to the army. Those who were registered of the tribe of Manasseh were 32,200. From the children of Benjamin, their genealogies by their clans, by their father's house, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and above, everyone going out to the army. Those who were registered of the tribe of Benjamin were 35,400. From the children of Dan, their genealogies by their clans, by their father's house, according to the number of names from twenty years old and above, everyone going out to the army. Those who were registered of the tribe of Dan were sixty-two thousand seven hundred. From the children of Asher, their genealogies by their clans, by their father's house, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and above, everyone going out to the army. Those who were registered of the tribe of Asher were forty-one thousand five hundred. From the children of Naphtali, their genealogies by their clans, by their father's house, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and above, everyone going out to the army. Those who were registered of the tribe of Naphtali were 53,400. These were those registered whom Moshe and Aaron registered with the leaders of the Israel, twelve men, each one for his father's house. And all those that were registered of the children of Israel by their father's houses, from twenty years old and above, everyone going out to the army in Israel. All those that were registered were 603,550. But the Levites were not registered among them by their father's tribe, because Hashem had spoken to Moshe, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you do not register, nor take a census of them among the children of Israel. Instead, appoint the Levites over the dwelling place of the witness, over all its furnishings, and over all that belongs to it. They bear the dwelling place and all its furnishings, and they attend to it, and camp around the dwelling place. 
and when the dwelling place is to go forward, and the Levites take it down, and when the dwelling place is to be set up, the Levites set it up, and the stranger who comes near is put to death. And the children of Israel shall pitch their tents, every one by his own camp, every one by his own banner, according to their divisions. But let the Levites camp around the dwelling place of the witness, so that there be no wrath on the congregation of the children of Israel. And the Levites shall guard the duty of the dwelling place of the witness. And the children of Israel did according to all that Hashem commanded Moshe, so they did. And Hashem spoke to Moshe and to Aaron, saying, The children of Israel are camp, each one by his own banner, beside the sign of his father's house. Let them camp around the tent of appointment at a distance. And on the east side toward the sunrise, those of the banner of the camp of Yehuda camp according to their divisions. And the leader of the children of Yehuda, Nachshon the son of Aminadav, and his army and their registered ones, 74,600, and those camping next to him is the tribe of Yisachar, and the leader of the children of Yisachar, Nathanael, son of Tuar, and his army with its registered ones, 54,400. Then the tribe of Zebulun, and the leader of the children of Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Chelon, and his army with its registered ones, 57,400. All the registered ones of the camp of Yehuda, according to their divisions, 186,400. These depart first. On the south side, the banner of the camp of Reuven, according to their divisions, and the leader of the children of Reuven, Elitzur, the son of Shedeur, and his army with its registered ones, 46,500, and those who camped next to him, the tribe of Shimon, and the leader of the children of Shimon, Shalumiel, son of Sirashadai, and his army with all their registered ones, 59,300. Then the tribe of Gad and their leader, the children of Gad, Elyasaf, the son of Reuel, and his army with their registered ones, 45,650, all the registered ones of the camp of Reuven, according to their divisions, 151,450, and they are the second to depart. And the tent of appointment, the camp of the Levites, shall move out in the middle of the camps. As they camp, so they move out, every one in his place by their banners. On the west side, the banner of the camp of Ephraim, according to their divisions, and the leader of the children of Ephraim, Elishama the son of Amihud, and his army with their registered ones, 40,500. And next to him, the tribe of Manasseh, and the leader of the children of Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedatsur, and his army with their registered ones, 32,200. Then the tribe of Benjamin, and their leaders of the children of Benjamin, Avidan, the son of Gidoni, and his army with their registered ones, 35,400. All the registered ones of the camp of Ephraim, according to their division, 108,100. And they are the third to depart. On the north side, the banner of the camp of Dan, according to the divisions, and the leader of the children of Dan, Ahiazer, the son of Amishadai, and his army with their registered ones, 62,700, and those who camped next to him, the tribe of Asher, and the leader of the children of Asher, Pagiel, the son of Ochran, and his army with their registered ones, 41,500. Then the tribe of Naphtali, and the leader of the children of Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Enan, and his army with their registered ones, 53,400. All the registered ones of the camp of Dan, 157,600, they depart last with their banners. These were the registered ones of the children of Israel by their fathers' houses, all who were registered according to their divisions of their camps, 603,550. But the Levites were not registered among the children of Israel as Hashem commanded Moshe. And the children of Israel did according to all that Hashem commanded Moshe. So they camped by their banners, and so they departed, each one by his clan, according to their fathers' houses. The book of Numbers, it begins in a way that causes many of us to disconnect from the very beginning. 
There is nothing that we like less than to read a bunch of text, which is simply recording numbers that have no real meaning to us. And as we've talked before, repetitive text has the tendency to lull us to sleep. We want to move on to the exciting bits, and Numbers has plenty of those for us to read. So why don't we just skip there? Everyone, open up now to chapter 10 of Numbers. (laughs) Well, we need to discard this name of Numbers. Even though that is what we initially encounter in this book, we must not approach this book from this point of view. We must view this book as it was intended. The experience of the wilderness. And the wilderness experience is not one of constant excitement. It is a time of waiting and pondering. It is a time of uh, taking account, examining the usefulness of your every resource, and being willing to discard those things that hold you back. The fact is that God does not call anyone out into the wilderness experience for no purpose. There is always a call that precedes the wilderness experience, a call to accomplish something for him. With Yeshua, his baptism preceded his wilderness experience. With Abraham, it was a promise and a blessing that preceded his wilderness experience. With Paul, it was a vision on the road of Damascus that preceded his wilderness experience. For Elijah, it was a battle with the prophets of Baal that preceded his. With David, it was an anointing by the prophet Samuel that preceded his. In the case of Israel that we are reading here, the call is for Israel to go and to take the land, for them to rise up in power and drive the enemy out of the land that was promised to their ancestors, the land that was promised to them, the land that was being given to them. And so, as everyone should do when called to do something, or when someone begins this process of carrying out a task of any size, there is an accounting that needs to occur. Last week, as we finished the book of Leviticus, we looked to the last chapter and we recognized that this chapter recounts for us the things that we as worshipers of Hashem can give to Him for service to Him. We read of costs associated with the redemption of various properties, goods, and even people. And we read of things that are wholly dedicated to Hashem. Again, people being on the list. And we pondered the call that has been placed on each one of us. Romans 12.1 I call upon you, therefore, brothers, through the compassion of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, well-pleasing to God, your reasonable worship. The call for reasonable worship of Hashem is to sacrifice your entire self to Him. Another verse that we looked at when Yeshua used the same language to describe the cost of discipleship in Luke 14, Luke 14:27, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me is unable to be my disciple. Whoever does not take up his cross to follow Yeshua is incapable of being a disciple. Whoever doesn't give up all that he has for the sake of Messiah cannot follow. Those are some very strong words, and they're oh so difficult to live up to. But the passage on Luke, it does not stop there. It begins with the call to become a disciple. And then Yeshua continues in verse 28 through 33. For who of you wishing to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation, he is unable to finish it. 
All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was unable to finish. Or what king, going out to fight against another king, does not sit down first and take counsel, whether he is able with ten thousand to meet him who comes against him with twenty thousand? And if not, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So then, every one of you who does not give up all that he has is unable to be my disciple. What is it that Yeshua is saying here? Before you answer the call to be a disciple of Yeshua, you must consider the cost of such an action. You must take an accounting before you begin this project. Because answering the call of becoming a disciple is one that will require all that you are. So take an accounting of all that you are, all that you have, and recognize that you will have to give it up in order to achieve the goal. For discipleship will cost it all. Every bit of it could be required from you at any moment. And if you can't part with your stuff, if you can't part with your comfort, if you can't part with your life, can you walk in the footsteps of the one who gave it all? And so when we open the book of Bamidbar, we need to recognize that this is what is occurring here. Israel has been called to absolute service to Hashem. Everything that they are is going to have to be leveraged against the enemy. Every man, every weapon, all that they have. And so as Yeshua says, the the first thing that the wise do is they sit down and they count the cost of obedience. What might this warfare cost? They gather the information of troop strengths and goods that could be leveraged towards the fight. And so, a census is taken. Now, in the census, there is an interesting turn of phrase. Several ideas that work together in conjunction to highlight some important ideas. First, it's found in verse 2. It does not say to take an accounting of each of the people or to take a census. This would be the word pekad. Rather, in Hebrew, the phrase used is to lift the heads of the congregation of the sons of Israel. This phrase is one of being recognized before royalty. It's the phrase of being noticed and given honor. Genesis 40, verse 13, Yet within three days Pharaoh is going to lift up your head and restore you to your place, and you shall put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former ruling when you were his cupbearer. Or Genesis 40, verse 19, Yet within three days Pharaoh is going to lift your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds shall eat your flesh from you. We see both cases. A person is being lifted up, and brought before the king, one for honor, one for dishonor. And the opposite then takes the ideal of being in a state of dishonor and defeat. Judges 8.28, Thus Midian was humbled before the children of Israel, and they lifted their heads no more. And the land was had rest for forty years in the days of Gideon. Zechariah 1.21, And I said, What are these coming to do? And he spoke, saying, These are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one lifted up his head. But these come to trouble them, to throw down the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah, to scatter it. The census was a way of giving honor to all who were about to engage in the fight that was about to come. And that's what the census was for. Verse 3, Everyone going out to the army of Israel. The warriors of Israel. The armies were the hosts that were to conquer and occupy the land. 
the ones who were to actively pick up weapons and put their lives in harm's way in battle. The ones who were to fight. A fight that, as we continue to read, never actually comes for this generation. A fight that, after this accounting and recognition of what resources are available for the battle, is never engaged because the people don't believe that they have the power to win the fight. Regardless, the census was a way of recognizing each of the men in the army, lifting their heads to give them the honor of a warrior and to build their courage to enter into the fight, an honor that we discover never really goes more than skin deep. And among the sons of Israel there are twelve armies created. One nation, twelve armies, one military force. Twelve generals are appointed to these armies, and at the end of it all, there are 603,550 fighting men to take the land. Now that seems like a lot to us, but for the fight that they are facing, they are outnumbered. Deuteronomy 7.1 When Hashem your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, he shall also clear away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Yebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. Now, it's often stated that this verse is uh, saying that each of these particular nations was mightier than Israel on a whole, meaning that each of these nations had a population greater than Israel's. That's not what's being said. It's saying that all seven of these nations added together are greater and mightier than Israel. And 603,550 seems like a multitude to us, but not only are they outnumbered, they're outmatched. Numbers 13, 32-33 And they gave the children of Israel an evil report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land eating up its inhabitants, and all of the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. And we saw there the Nephilim, sons of Anak of the Nephilim. And we were like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and so we were in their eyes. In the logic and reason of the world, there is no way that they could win this fight. And because they used reason to determine what choice they should make rather than listening to God in obedience, they don't win the fight. Not just that they don't win, they don't even get to fight. At least, not until it's too late. But that's for another lesson. The fact is that Israel was commanded to count the cost of obedience and discipleship, and this first generation decided that the cost was too great. They imagined defeat at every turn. They spoke poorly of the promise that was made to them. They lacked the faith that their experience should have built in them. The honor bestowed on them as warriors for God was only skin deep. It did not reach deep inside of them and change who they were. In their eyes, they were still slaves. They were still servants. They were not powerful. They were not honorable. They were not precious in his sight. They had no authority. And they assumed that God was like them, fickle and untrustworthy. And the destiny that had been chosen for them by Hashem it skipped over them due to their lack of faith, due to their lack of faithfulness. In all of this accounting, there is one tribe that's left out. The Levites are not counted among Israel as those who are to go out to war. The Levites, well, they have a different war to fight. 
they have a different responsibility in the upcoming war. Now, this doesn't mean that they won't fight or engage the enemy, but the way that they will do so is different from the rest. While the rest of Israel is concerned about projecting power out into the world and engaging the enemies, the Levites' duties, they were internal. Their responsibility was to protect the sanctity of God from an enemy that would encroach. They were the only ones who were to be allowed access to the holy things of God. They were the only ones who were to carry the tabernacle and the articles. And as we read in verse 51, it is the Levites' charge to kill any foreigner who might get close to the tabernacle in order to defile it. Their job was to protect the holiness of the place of worship, to prevent any outside defilement from getting close in the moments when the tabernacle may be in a place of vulnerability. In a modern understanding, this would be the difference between an evangelist and a pastor, one going outward to take ground from the enemy, the other focused inward to keep the sanctity of God out of the hands of the enemy. And so, as chapter 2 opens, we read the arrangement of the tribes around the tabernacle. The tribes that were counted for war are stationed on the outside around the tabernacle, three tribes to each side, and in the center, the Levites, in their protective posture against the most precious treasure in Israel, their God, in His holiness, honor, and glory. And so in chapter 2, we read of the encampments around the tabernacle. We see reflected in the center in verse 17, the Levites who camp around the tabernacle and who are to march in the center of the entire column of Israel when on the move. The others form an outward-facing perimeter. And the order of the tribes, well, that's not accidental either. If we pay attention, we find that the tribes are arranged according to their mother. To the east are Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, sons of Leah that were not passed over in the line of succession for one reason or another. To the south are the remaining sons of Leah, minus Levi, Reuben, Simeon, two of whom were passed over in the succession, and the firstborn of Leah's concubine, Gad. To the west are the sons of Rachel, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. To the north are the remaining sons of the concubines, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Rachel's handmaid, and nestled between them is the remaining son of Leah's handmaid, Asher. The order and organization of these tribes is not accidental, it's familial. Second, we find something interesting if we examine these tribes in light of their tribal symbols connected to later passages in Scripture. Now, these tribal symbols are not found anywhere in Scripture in full detail. They are symbols that are implied in some places, but that have been carried down through tradition more than anything else. Now, why are these symbols that we find traditionally associated with each tribe important? Well, each side of the camp lists a single banner that was to be placed on that side as representative of all of the tribes on that side. Because of this, there are four tribes in particular that we want to look at, because it was their banner that was stood for their side. So in verse 3, we read it was the banner of Judah. And in Genesis 49, 9, we read Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey you have gone up, my son. He bowed down and he crouched like a lion, and like a lion who does rouse him. And in Revelation 5, 5, we read, And one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, overcame to open the scroll and to loosen its seven seals. So on the first side, the banner is thought to have represented a lion. 
I mean, that's easy, right? It's it's throughout scripture. So let's move on. In verse 10, we read of the tribe of Reuben, the banner of the tribe of Reuben. Now with Reuben, there is some disagreement as to their symbol. Some say that the symbol of Reuben was a flower that represented the mandrake that Reuben picked for his mother. Others say that Reuben's symbol was a man based on the meaning of his name. Genesis 29.32 And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuven. For she said, For Hashem has looked on my affliction, because now my husband is going to love me. Reuven's name means, See, a son. I believe with the evidence that we're going to go through that his symbol was in fact a man. So we have a lion on one side and a man on another. In verse 18, we read of Ephraim. With Ephraim, it is thought that the symbol was a bull or an ox, based on several passages. In Deuteronomy, in the midst of the blessings that Moses speaks over Joseph, we read this. Deuteronomy 33:17. His splendor is like the firstborn bull, and his horns are like the horns of the wild ox. With them he pushes the people to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. His glory as the firstborn bull. His firstborn represented by a bull. And then again in Jeremiah 31, verse 18, we read, And I have clearly heard Ephraim lamenting, You have chastised me, and I was chastised like an untrained bull. Take me back, and I shall turn back, for you are Hashem, my Elohim. So to the third side, we have a bull. So we have a lion, a man, and a bull. And finally, we have in verse 25, the banner of Dan. Once again, there is disagreement over which symbol was on the flag of Dan. There are some who say that it was the serpent that was on the flag of Dan, based on Genesis 49, 16-17. Dan rightly rules the people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan is a serpent by the way, an adder by the path that bites the horse's heel so that its rider falls backward. So there is this one side of the argument, and this is their proof. And the other side says that the symbol of Dan was an eagle. Now, why an eagle? Dan is never described as an eagle anywhere in Scripture. To discover this, we need to look at verse 16 of the passage that I just read in Genesis 49. Dan judges his people as one of the tribes of Israel. The connection to the eagle is then thought to be connected to the use of the eagle as a symbol for swift and sudden judgment. Deuteronomy 28.49 Hashem shall bring a nation against you from afar and from the ends of the earth as swift as the eagle flies and nations whose language you shall not understand. But justice is not only something that destroys, justice can also save. Deuteronomy 32.11, As an eagle stirs up its nest and flutters over its young, spreads out its wing, taking them up, bearing them on its wings. And justice can protect. Exodus 19.14, You have seen what I did to the Mitzrites, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In the ancient world, the eagle was seen as the judge on high, the one who could save or destroy based on its own judgment. And when that judgment is made, the enactment of judgment is swift and deadly. And so it's thought that Dan's symbol was an eagle for this reason. Was it a serpent or an eagle? Uh, Let me ask you a question. Which would you choose for yourself if you had been raised on the stories of Genesis? 
Well, in my estimation, you probably wouldn't choose the serpent because of the stories of Genesis 3, which leaves the eagle as the symbol of justice and judgment. So, four banners, four symbols, four creatures that live in the earth and follow the leading of the Spirit of God. A lion, a man, a bull, and an eagle. Four symbols that we read of elsewhere in Scripture. Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. And it came to be in the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth of the new moon, as I was among the exiles by the river Kebar, the heavens opened to me, and I saw visions of Elohim. On the fifth of the new moon, in the fifth year of the king Jehoiakim's exile, the word of Hashem came expressly to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the river Kebar. And the hand of Hashem came upon him there, and I looked and I saw a whirlwind coming out of the north, a great cloud with fire flashing itself, and a brightness was all around it, and out of its midst like a glowing metal, out of the midst of the fire, and out of the midst of it came what looked like four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man, and each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. And their feet were straight feet, and their soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' foot. And they sparkled like the appearance of polished bronze. And under their wings and on their four sides were the hands of a man. And each of the four had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. They did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. And the likeness of their faces, the face of a man, and each of the four had face of a lion on the right side and each of the four had a face of an ox on the left side, and each of the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread upward, two of each touched one another, and two covered their bodies, and each one went straight forward, going wherever the spirit was to go, and they did not turn when they went. Four creatures, each with four faces, a man, a lion, a bull, and an eagle. And they were brought out of the north on a whirlwind, and they were led onward by the Spirit. In a few chapters, we're going to read that Israel was not to move until the pillar of cloud and fire moved. They were to go where the Spirit led. They were to go when the Spirit led. And if we continue in Ezekiel, these four creatures were stationed just below the throne of God. Now, there's more to say on this, but we'll come back to this in a later lesson and track it much more fully. So, why do I bring this up, if not to track it further today? Well, Because it reveals a great truth for us. The book of Numbers is not just a story of some people thousands of years ago who wandered in a wilderness for 40 years. It is a book that's full of symbols that are extrapolated in many important ways throughout the rest of Scripture. It is a book that is full of symbols that we can apply to our own lives and to our own calling. And we can start here. All of who were of a certain age were called to fight. Everyone. Even the Levites in their own capacity. And this is the truth that we must recognize in our own calling. For there are many who make up the body of Messiah. There are many gifts that have been given to us to accomplish this fight. There are many expressions of Israel, even in our midst, just as there were twelve tribes. But regardless of calling, regardless of gifting, regardless of temperament, and regardless of any other factor, we are all called to fight the enemy. 
to engage him and to take the battle to him. And it is the wilderness experience that precedes this fight. It is the wilderness that refines and molds and prepares us for the fight. Most of all, it is the wilderness that builds our faith for the fight. You see, Israel counted the cost of the fight here at the beginning of the wilderness. They counted up their resources and their might, and when they saw the enemy, they came to the conclusion that they could not win the fight. So they sat back, and they died because they did not engage the enemy. They assumed they would die in the fight, and instead, they died without fighting. So what do we discover on the backside of the wilderness as Israel comes out and prepares for the fight to come once again? Well, when Israel goes through this process of counting the cost at the end of the book, they did not get bigger. They lost numbers. They lost a full 2,000 in number while in the wilderness and in a generation. And yet, the second generation did not balk at the call. The second generation was able and willing to stand and to take the ground that Hashem had placed before them. How were they able to go to war when their parents, who were bigger and stronger than them, were unable? It's because they had been through the wilderness. This new man that had experienced the trials and the suffering of the wilderness was capable and able to take the fight to the enemy. They had seen God move, they had seen his protection, and they had disconnected from the past once and for all. They believed in his power and authority to overcome their enemies. They knew firsthand his compassion and guidance. They were capable of operating the call that had been given. They followed the Spirit of God when he led them to difficult circumstances. The second generation counted the cost of discipleship and concluded that with God for them, then nothing could stand against them, regardless of how mighty the enemy seemed, regardless of how numerous the enemy seemed, regardless of how impossible the odds seemed. They had God on their side, and they were ready to fight because that is what they had been called to do. And this is what each one of us has been called to, to stand and to fight against the power of the enemy. And so the question remains, have you counted the cost of your calling? Are you ready to give up everything to answer that call? For you have been called to war. Each and every one of us has been called, not just the healers, not just the discerners, not just the teachers, not just the administrators, every one of us. Every mature adult of Israel has been called. Every one of the 12 disciples went to war with the enemy when they were sent out. Every one of the 70 that were sent out had the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and all the power of the enemy. And every one of us has that same power and same calling. But too many of us have not engaged. We're still sitting back and praying that God will fight our battles when we are unwilling to pick up the weapons that he has already entrusted us with. Many of us are still lusting after the leeks and the melons and the cucumbers that Egypt provides. We're comfortable in our bondage. Too comfortable to take the chance on a fight. 
But the fact is, God will fight our battles. But we have to engage in the battles ourselves. Israel didn't simply walk into Canaan without warfare. They didn't think, well, God will fight our battles so we can simply walk in calmly behind him as he does all of the fighting. That's not what it means when God fights our battles. That's not what it looks like. It means engaging the enemy and staring them face to face. It means their hot breath on your face as you struggle against him. But it also means that in the midst of this, there's no fear or even a thought of defeat. The battle has been won. We simply have to act like it. And we have to go to war. We have been equipped with spiritual gifts. We have been granted all of the authority and the power that we need. But we, our modern church, our modern people, we are so woefully out of practice. And so, it's time that we practice. The enemy has overrun our churches. He has overrun our governments. He has infiltrated every human institution. But we, the true hosts of Adonai, have been given the power to stand up against him. And it's up to us. We are the army that God has in the physical to fight these spiritual battles. And by exercising that spiritual power, we can not only find life for ourselves, we can give life to others. So continue to Darash Chai. Seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Darash Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Darash Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.